Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. Today's passage is, is interesting, at least. Not that all scripture is not somewhat intriguing or interesting, but it may be a passage you've read before, maybe you've read over, maybe you, I'm not sure this was one that was taught in Sunday school necessarily, because I don't know how much we would get out of it as a child. And I didn't plan on saying it this way, but if you're here today, you are privileged in more ways than you can imagine. Most of you know I'm pretty patriotic. I love America. I hate every other country. I'm getting out. No, no, no. And um, I'm proud to be an American in a good, wholesome way. But spiritually, if you are here today, living in this time and this the word we'll see in the text in this generation with the amount of gospel that is available readily available to you not just in church on sunday but every day every hour of your life the gospel is available you are privileged now, for those of you who get into the political correctness and incorrectness, take that, take that thought out of your mind so we can think clearly today. We are all privileged to be an American, to be free, even with some leaders that don't know if they're coming or going, we still live in freedom. We still have men and women who are willing to lay down their lives for us. I need a little more grunting than that. They're on ships right now. They're in airplanes right now. They're in barracks right now. We are privileged to be an American. Don't let the foolishness and the ignorance and the silliness of Washington blind your mind to the reality that we live in a free country. And you're privileged. We're here in a church that has heat, that has air, that has a roof that doesn't leak too much. With lights and microphones and equipment that costs thousands and thousands of dollars. We're blessed and we're privileged. And not one of us probably has had a thought, unless you're just super conspiracy, that someone's coming in here with a gun to stop us from worshiping today. And some of you have taken it upon yourself to help alleviate that, and we appreciate that. Just know where you're going when you do it. More importantly, more seriously, every person in this room has access to a copy of the Word of God. Now, I hope you brought it today, and I'm not here to fuss at you if you didn't, 
And if you don't have one, I promise you, you can have one by the end of this service if you want one. So everybody in here has access to the Word of God, God's inspiration, God's Word revealed to us, God in the flesh, Jesus, who in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're a privileged generation to be a part of this generation with all of our problems, and we've got a few, we're privileged to have access to the gospel. And Jesus in this text calls out a group of people who were privileged people. And the application is still as relevant today as it was in the days of Capernaum, Chorazine, and Bethsaida. I don't know where those are, doesn't matter. I've been there, doesn't matter. The principles still apply today. When we read this text, I want you to be thinking, I'm a privileged part of this generation to have access to the gospel. Matthew chapter 11, starting, that saved about 12 more minutes of preaching right there, if you were worried. And they said, well, it took 12 minutes. I don't care. Matthew 11, we're going to read verses 16 through 24. For those of you visiting here, we like to stand as we honor God's word. We believe it's absolute truth. We believe it's relevant for today. It's not outdated, and if we live another hundred years, it still won't be outdated. It's worthy of our honor. Jesus talking about this group or this generation, he asked this question, where unto shall I liken this generation? It's like children sitting in the markets and calling under their fellows or their friends. And they say, we've piped for you, we've played for you, and you've not danced, we've mourned unto you, and you've not lamented or been sad. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said about him, he has a devil, John the Baptist. He must be possessed. And then the Son of Man came eating, Jesus, eating and drinking, and they said, behold, a, a gluttonous man, a wine-bibber, a friend of the publicans and sinners. Don't miss this, and I'll try to preach this point in a second. But wisdom is justified of her children. Then Jesus began to upbraid, King James word for fuss. No, he began to discipline them. He began to upbraid the cities where most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Don't miss that. And this is what he said. Woe unto you, Chorazine. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you, in your presence, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Old Testament pagan cities, they would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, 
you will be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee, in your presence, had been done in Sodom, they would have repented and remained until this day. But I say unto you, Capernaum, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Would you pray with me? I meant to mention this earlier. Pray for Jeff and Ann Keller. Of course, her good friend Crystal passed away, and we mentioned that. But they are in Canada. And um, pray for their travel as they're there. And pray for Ann, if you would. Father, thank you for your word. We certainly believe it's absolute truth. We certainly believe it's relevant for today. And I pray in this privileged group of people that your word will penetrate our hearts. For those of us who are believers, that we would be grateful for our salvation. If there's a lost person today, certainly in a group of people this size, here in this building or maybe watching today or watching this or listening to this sermon later, certainly there's someone who's never truly been born again, but they've heard the gospel over and over. God, they would see how serious it is to respond by making you Lord of their life. God, we do pray for Ann and Jeff as they travel. We pray you meet their needs. Be with Ann. Be with that family of Crystal. Comfort them. Give them peace. Point people to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A privileged generation. Talked recently about prayer. We've talked recently about the Great Commission. In this text, it's sometimes intriguing to know that Jesus actually witnessed. Jesus told people about Jesus. He preached and taught the good news of the gospel. Even before Matthew chapter 11, we see several places in this, in this book where Jesus is going city by city, preaching to them, teaching to them, healing their sick. This is important to understand and I'll probably forget to say it later, but Jesus first taught them gently before he rebuked them harshly. This passage of scripture, this upbraiding is a rebuking by Jesus to people who have been privileged to the gospel. We'll see that very clearly in a second. He says about a generation, and it's important for us to understand uh, the time frame here, Jesus is mainly ministering to Jews at this point. Matthew is writing, representing Christ as king of the Jews, and Jesus had a Jewish ministry per se. He's going through all these Jewish cities that many of us have been through or been to on a trip to the Holy Land. We've been to Bethsaida. We've been to Capernaum. We've uh, been able to see Chorazin. You didn't know it and nothing's really special about Chorazin as we'll see here in the text other than he calls them out. These are real places. If Jesus has had a three-year, three-and-a-half-year public ministry and he lived approximately 33 and a half years, 
It's important for us to understand the generation that he's talking about. And I want, I want, this, I want this to be clear. I hope it's not, I hope it's helpful. Jesus is now in his three and a half year ministry. He's preaching, teaching, healing, not doing nothing but good to every person, every man he comes in contact with. And he calls out this generation. Who would this generation be? It would be the group of people, the time frame, if you will, of people who were privy to his leadership, his teaching, his life. If he's only 33 years old, roughly, then based on what we consider a generation being 15 to 20 years, he's preaching to potentially multiple generations. Everybody with me? There's 30 years, if you will, and really if you only think about the three and a half year public ministry, maybe he's only speaking to a specific generation. He is not condemning an entire generation. He's talking to a generation of people and will eventually strategically, specifically condemn those who heard him, had access to him, but rejected him. And I think about this today and make application. Uh, I, I get into this generations and I give some generations a harder time than others. But from the from the greatest generation that we look at, that World War II generation, which we're losing fastly, few, very few of them left, all the way up to Gen Z. It's about six generations in our, what I want us to look at, our generation, if you will. Six generations within a generation, a population of people that have certainly had overwhelming access to the gospel. Now, if I had a lot of time, I would talk about each one of these generations and we could make some observations. Let me make this observation. If I had a graph, I would show you or a whiteboard. From the greatest generation, the generation that saved America, to the Gen Z, that's the new one if you're not familiar with them. If millennials weren't bad enough, now we got Gen Z. We love you millennials and you Gen Zers. Think about this. From the greatest generation, I'm making sure we're going left to right, to the Gen Z generation. In my mind, I, go, I see it doing like this, but let's just, let's just see it. And I'm part of that going down too. Just X. We didn't, the Gen X didn't, they didn't know what to call us, so they just said X. I looked at that as a variable. Make it whatever you want it to be. That's what we did. So there's been more and more and more access to the gospel from the greatest generation to Gen Z. But statistically and just the eyeball test, we can see Christianity, believers, faithful believers, Why? Well, there's a lot of maybe some eschatological answers. The reality is there is more and more access to the gospel today. Y'all still see my graph? But less response to the gospel today than ever before. 
And to make it worse, there's more people today than ever before and less response. Now, I'm, I'm kind of partial to America, so I look at American stats because I could care less what the rest of them are doing sometimes. That would be a good time to take a dirt road politically, but I won't. We've got a lot of problems here in America that billions and billions of dollars could help. A couple of them, okay. You didn't like that dirt road. You want to give your taxpayer money away to other countries that you don't even know exist. They hate us, don't you? That's called sarcasm. So in our, in our generation, as using the term Jesus would have been using, we see multiple generations who have access to the gospel. He characterizes this generation in the first couple verses. And I know my time is short, and I'm going to cliff notes this. But somebody please acknowledge how hard it is for me to study for hours and hours and hours and come in and bring 50 minutes or 55 or 65, much less 35 to 40. Y'all feel sorry for me, please. I need it. How does Jesus characterize this generation? Let's look at this condition. He says in verse 16 and 17, what shall I like? How should I compare this generation? Please don't miss what Jesus says about this generation that he's talking to. They're like kids. They're like children. Children doing what? You study a little bit, you'll find out this is a game that hopefully you've never played. It's like an ancient game of Simon Says. I played my flute and you're supposed to dance. They're actually children who are playing a game based on what they've what they've watched adults do. By the way, they used to dance back in those days before they got real Baptist-like and decided they were too spiritual to dance. We piped for you and you didn't dance. We uh, played sad songs and you didn't cry. They had seen this in parties. They had seen this at weddings, but they had also seen this in funerals like paid mourners. Children watch us, by the way, that's not part of the sermon, and will do what we do. So they're playing this game. And Jesus said, when I look at this generation who I'm speaking to, who I've witnessed to, who I've healed people and, and preached the gospel, I, I see you guys like a bunch of childish, whining babies. I use the word calloused. You can use another word if you want to make this sermon up. Uh, they're cold. They're indifferent. They're desensitized. The flute plays, and you pout. You don't play along. You're not involved. Oh, see how this sermon could take so many twists. You're just spoiled. Now, if y'all look engaged and make the connections and connect the dots, I will not preach as long as I could. We've got to compare the generation Jesus is talking to and apply the applications to our generation. No, he's not talking to Kannapolis, but he is talking to Kannapolis. He's not talking to America, but he is talking to America. And he's talking to the cities of America who have been um, flooded with the gospel. But yet... 
I think he's talking to churches where people sit Sunday after Sunday and hear somebody preach the gospel. Not just this church, churches all over the country. The gospel. You can be saved. God is gracious. God is merciful. God loves you. While you were a sinner, he died for you. And they just won't respond. Kind of like our kids who are spoiled today. And it's our job to spoil them. We want them to have it better than we ever had it. And I think I have accomplished that about 10 years ago already, but we still do it. Anyway. But do we not? Buy your kids something that you would have probably uh, went nuts over. Called your friend. Called your friend. You won't believe. You spent a lot of money. Put a lot of thought in it. When I see the games my son and my daughter plays, by the way, I tried to put her AI goggles on the other day. Woo! Too old for that. Got a little dizzy. Got a little sick. Done with that. Didn't really want to do it anyway. I just wanted to take it away from her so she would whine. And, um, and she did. I wanted to play that. You didn't. It was just sitting there until I put it on. But when I see the games they play. I see the graphics on the TV my son plays. And then I think of combat with Atari. When the one joystick and the button. Right? I'm not mad at this generation. We love them and we're going to shower them with stuff they don't deserve. But Jesus is saying that's how we respond, how his generation was responding to the greatest news he could ever give. I'm good. Cold, indifferent, desensitized. And in churches all over America today, the gospel will be preached. And there'll be people sitting there dressed up in suits, just as lost when they leave as they were when they came in. They were calloused. But notice also they were, I use the word cynical. They were, they were critical, but they were cynical. Cynicism is different than critical. Cynicism is when you really are, it's about you. Don't miss that. That's why I use this word. He, he tells them they had John. John the Baptist came preaching repentance. Repent for the day of the Lord is at hand. He's baptizing them. And many came to him confessing their sins and they were baptized. John the Baptist came preaching to them. By the way, Jesus said of John the Baptist, no man ever born has been greater than John the Baptist. And what did they say about John the Baptist? He's crazy. He doesn't eat. Now he did eat but he had a strict diet. It was a very strict religious diet. He didn't just eat locust and wild honey because he was a nutcase. He, he stayed away intentionally for religious reasons, for purification reasons. He was a good guy who preached the truth. A little crazy, a little goofy looking, but he was a straight-laced gospel preacher. And they said of him, um, what did they say exactly? He's possessed. Then Jesus comes along, and Jesus 
had a little different life than John the Baptist. He hung out with sinners. And somebody in here ought to say, well, I'm glad he did. Uh, now, I read and I study a lot of people, see what they have to say, and then I straighten it out and write my sermons. That's how I do it. No. Um, Jesus went to... I hope y'all don't get offended by this. Jesus went to parties. Matter of fact, his first miracle was at a party. Now, we'll stop there because the rest of y'all are like, oh, I don't know why I wrote that. They ran out of Welch's, and I know they needed good grape juice. So, so we'll stop. I didn't say he was a party animal. Don't be changing my... But Jesus went to banquets. He went to parties. He went to feasts. And if people invited him, he showed up. And he sat down with old Zacchaeus. And they, they got mad because he sat down with Zacchaeus. This text says he sat down with Republicans. And so he even sat down with Republicans. <laughs> and Democrats. He would, he would be, and they said unto him, because he would go to these parties, because he would hang out with lost people. I'm, stop, please notice this. He hangs out with saved people and they sit around. So he goes to the lost people who need salvation, who need their life changed, who see they need help. And so he shows up and then they criticize that. Oh, he's a, he's a wine-bibber. Oh, so much if we had hours. He's a glutton. He's just a fat drinker. That's what they said about Jesus. They criticized John the Baptist because he was straight-laced and wouldn't eat certain things. And they say, he's a nut. He's, he's demon-possessed. And then Jesus comes. So you got the forerunner of Jesus, the cousin of Jesus, no man greater than uh, ever been born, Jesus said, than John. And then you have Jesus, God in the flesh, the Messiah come, and neither one of them were good enough for him. They both found, they found problems with both of them. There's a lot of very practical applications with that. When Jesus says, let me, let me see how I should compare them. They're a bunch of spoiled, rotten, selfish children who whine. That's what he says. So that's, not what, that's what he says. And then we think about today. This is the generation he was talking to. This is how he characterized them. And if we've got any sense of maturity spiritually, we look at this generation. I didn't say Gen Z. I didn't say Gen X. I didn't say millennials. I said this generation, this time frame of people who have complete access to the gospel, but yet refuse and reject and pout. This is the generation. This is the type of generation Jesus is talking about. But I want to notice something, and this will be the shortest point ever. Not only the condition of the sinner that he points out, don't miss the very last part of verse 19. There's a contrast. There's a but. And he says, but wisdom is justified. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. When, when we as a believer act on our salvation, act on the gospel. We are confirming that it's true. This is what he says. It's a phrase, it's a, it's a poetic Proverbs-like phrase that Jesus uses here that really I could expound upon. But what he's saying is based on what Proverbs says. In Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom written supposedly by the wisest guy who ever lived in Solomon, says that um, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Listen to what Proverbs 8.32 says. Now, therefore, hearken to me, O ye children. This is wisdom talking in Proverbs. Hearken to me, ye children, for blessed are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and refuse it not. Blessed is the man that hears me. Here's who? Wisdom. Watching daily at my gates, waiting at, at the post of my doors. For whoever findeth me findeth life and shall obtain favor of the Lord. Yet, trust me, the Jewish people understood Jesus, or God, in this case, as the personification of wisdom. And in the book of Proverbs, wisdom, or God, is calling on people to follow him. Jesus here says, a little phrase that we could miss, wisdom is justified, but wisdom. Unlike those who have sat and heard the horns, heard the flutes, and sat there, I'm not going to move, heard the sad music, I'm not going to sing, heard the gospel, didn't respond, unlike them, but, but wisdom is justified by her children. Those who have truly been born again, those who have truly, truly put their faith in Christ, those who are children of God, children of wisdom, will vindicate, they will prove, they will confirm God's word by living it. Oh, I got a lot. Y'all didn't seem to like that one, so I'm, but I'm going to skip. We got, we're supposed to live like we believe. How will the world know that you're my disciples? By your love for one another. What's so big about love? Well, Jesus said, hey, the greatest commandments, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How will people know you're my disciples? By your love for one another. You really, you really born again? You really love God? Love others. That's how they'll know. In other words, you'll live out your faith. Faith without works is? Wow, y'all have heard that one before. We're not saved by our works, but we work because we're saved. Jesus condemns this group, this generation. And don't miss this. Why? These are harsh words. And I got eight minutes. And that ain't happening. He, he outlines their condition. Y'all see how fast this is already. I'm not halfway where I should be. Then he calls out the Christians, the believer, to live right. And then the the text turns, and I, I want you to, I know some of us have better imaginations than others, and it's not all about our imagination. And I sometimes get aggravated with um, the little the sissified Jesus pictures. By the way, somebody sent me a nice picture this week of a warrior angel. They're like, I thought about you, and I said, that's exactly, that's what he looks like right there. But anyway, do you see the sissy Jesus? Jesus wasn't a sissy. He was a man. He was a strong man. He was a carpenter. I, I think I, I'd like to um, think he didn't look like a sissy. I don't have a verse for that. 
other than some other. Anyway, but just roll with me. But I think he was kind. I think he was loving. I think he was tender. I think he could speak and you would listen. I think he could keep your attention. And I think you wanted to hear him. I think the people that didn't agree with him still wanted to hear him because they showed up in thousands. And I don't think he ever looked as mean or mad as I do sometimes when he was teaching. But I think you could tell on his face and hear in his voice the change when he starts in verse 20. I've preached to you. I've taught. I've sat down and played with your kids. I went into cities, and I'm, gonna, I'm really, really making this quick. I've been to cities where you heard I was in there in Matthew chapter 3. You heard I was there, and you brought out sick people on their beds in the streets. And I went through these cities, and I healed every one of them I could touch. But now, I want you to listen to me. And he began to upbraid them. He began to rebuke them. And he starts calling out names. And you can tell the tone has changed. And he wants you to tell. The tone has changed. And don't miss this, church. Don't miss this, lost person. Salvation is serious business. We've learned in the last couple weeks there are consequences for our decision. There are eternal consequences for our decision. And Jesus even pulls it out again when he talks about the day of judgment here. And he begins to condemn the cities. This word upbraid means to not just rebuke, but to denounce them. Why? Two specific reasons. The cities had received revelation. But yet the cities had refused to repent. Verse 20 says, he began to upbraid the cities where most of his works were done. I know it's, I know the time. But if you can focus for a few more minutes, this is the place to focus. He rebukes the cities where most of his works were done. They had rejected John the Baptist. They had rejected him. And in verse 21, he calls out two of those cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now, just for you Bible scholars, there's no other time Chorazin is mentioned in the New Testament. However, let's... It's a good place to be reminded that the Gospels are not exhaustive. Everything that Jesus did isn't in this book. What's in this book is what he did, but not everything he did is in this book. John said, if everything he said, everything he did was written, all the books in the world couldn't contain them. But Jesus calls out coursing, so I'm going to just by faith believe he had done some mighty works in coursing. Now, coursing is a city. You can see it on, on maps. He calls them out, but then he calls out Bethsaida. What happened in Bethsaida? Bethsaida is mentioned in Mark chapter 6. Jesus says, uh, get on the boat, go to Bethsaida. I'm going to go pray. While he's praying, storm comes up. 
They get a little afraid. Jesus done praying. He comes walking out on water. This happened in Bethsaida, on their way to Bethsaida. In Mark chapter 8, there's a blind man. Jesus spit on his eyes. He started to see men like trees, and then he spit again, and he, he can see clearly. This happened in Bethsaida. In Bethsaida, in Luke chapter 9, he goes into the cities, speaking to them of the kingdom of God, and all that followed him were healed that needed healing, Luke 9, 11. He calls out those two cities where Jesus had done works. They had seen him. But look at the word he uses. Woe to you. Woe to you, Chorusing. Woe to you, Bethsaida. The word woe there means our word horror. Horror. Not bad. Not not good. Woe to you. Horror to you, Bethsaida. Said from the mouth of Jesus. It's a, it's a kind of a future tense word. This is what you can expect. Horror. He's not talking about bad things happening to you. He's talking about judgment. Horror to you, two cities. Then he calls out Capernaum. Capernaum is known as the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. Several of us have been to Capernaum. I can't read this text without walking around Capernaum. You see all through Scripture, Capernaum. Uh, historians, theologians tell us that Jesus spent probably a good 20 months of his three-and-a-half-year ministry in Capernaum. He preached in their synagogues in Capernaum. You can go see them today. He healed Peter's mother-in-law at her house at Capernaum. You can see the remains of her house today. It's the only town that was ever referred to as Jesus' home, Capernaum. In Mark, I believe it is, um, we see that the, in the home uh, where a paralyzed man was, uh, the house was full and nobody could get in and they tear the roof off. This happened in Capernaum. Jesus says, don't miss this, Capernaum, who was exalted in heaven. What does he mean by exalted in heaven? They were elevated. You were the hometown of Jesus. You had seen him. You had heard him. There are sites that you can still go to see today. But just like he said, woe to them. He said, you were elevated to heaven now you'll be exiled to hell. Why? Because you had access. Because you had received much revelation. Now horror, dread, woe unto you, Capernaum. Look what he says would have happened. Tyre and Sidon, 
You don't have to be a Bible historian. I did a little work, but Tyre and Sidon were pagan, idolatrous nations who were condemned. Most of us good Baptists know about Sodom. Not only did they participate in gross sexual sins, they exploited it and they celebrated it. Most everybody would say they deserved to be destroyed. Y'all wouldn't say that. Y'all look real serious and stoic right now. I'm, I'm going to say nothing like that. That's up to God. I'm, I'm doing that. Well, they were, they were terrible sinners. They certainly deserved it. Listen to what Jesus says. Now, I've already messed up my notes. He says, if I would have done the works that I've done for you in your presence, the miracles and the teachings that you've heard, Capernaum, you've heard Bethsaida, you've heard Court. If I would have done those works in Sodom, Sodom would still be standing today. Sire, um, Tyre and Sidon would have re repented in sackcloth and ashes and they would remain until today. If I would have only done for them what I did for you, but you repented. You didn't repent. You rejected. Then he goes on and he says something that probably caught a lot of people's attention that ought to catch our attention. He goes on and says in verse 22 and 24, it shall be more tolerable for them than for you at the day of judgment. Oh, this is where we need to sit down and sit down and have some coffee and talk about this one. He looks at the people who had seen and experienced him in the eye. He is now condemning them. He's rebuking them and saying, it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than you. And some of y'all are looking at me like y'all think I'm reading out of a different Bible. It's there. It says it. And don't get me wrong. It doesn't say they'll be excused. There will be judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. There will be judgment for them. There will be condemnation for them. There will be hell for every person who's rejected the gospel. I read this and I studied this and I thought about this and, and I've heard people say this and so just play along and it'll, it'll, go, it'll, it'll be over shortly. You see a crime, you hear about a crime, you watch something on TV and say, how in the world can somebody do something like that? Y'all never said this. I can go ahead and tell looking at your face, you've never said this, but I've heard people say, boy, there's a special place in hell for that kind of person. You have said it. And I understand the logic. I also understand that's finite human logic. And I understand what they mean. And I'm going to just be, be the first redneck up here to say, I've been one to say if they do it to mine, they won't get to them before I do. All right, I'm, I'm just saying, I sinned. Probably. I just, is that a sin? They won't have to put them in the chair because I'll get them before they do it. 
But we've said there's a special place in hell for people who do this, this, and this, and this. And Jesus says there's a special judgment for those who have heard, had access, had privilege, and rejected. More tolerable is the word. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. You may say, and, and, and I know, I, I read minds. You may say, well, hell's hell and it's all bad. I wouldn't disagree with you there. But I'm not going to disagree with Jesus when he says it'll be worse for you than for them. Now, you can see where I'm going. But I can only imagine the thousands or the millions of people in America and this generation who have had access to the gospel, have heard it preached, have seen a track, have laughed at us, laughed at our message. Oh, they think this, they think that. I didn't have a lot of time to spend on that first group of people, that childish generation, but you know their responses. They think they're better than me. They're holy rollers. They think they, they're perfect. No, we don't think that. If you hang out with us a while, you'll figure out we're not, and we don't believe that way. We believe we're sinners saved by God's grace. We're a new creation. We believe that, but we understand how we got there. And Jesus said it'll be more tolerable for Sodom than for some Baptist who sat on a church pew week after week and heard the gospel and walked out the same way they walked in. They had a revelation, but they refused to repent. Repentance is important. Repentance is paramount for salvation. John the Baptist preached repentance. It's a complete turnaround. It means to change one's life, a complete change of attitude concerning Sin and righteousness. I taught ninth grade Bible for five years and I can still, 20 years later, remember our ninth grade Bible definition. It's a change of heart and mind that results in a change of action. And John the Baptist said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this generation, and our generation, have an opportunity to repent. You have an opportunity to repent and be born again. There is a judgment. There is and there are consequences. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 9, God's not willing that any should perish. He didn't just say die. He said perish. God's not willing that any should die without hope, but that all should come to repentance. 
I seem to talk about this too much, or maybe not enough, depending on who you are. I'm absolutely convinced that the Word of God teaches that God loved the world enough to die for the world. And that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that 2 Peter 3, 9 is the word of God, that he's not willing that any should perish. I'm not naive enough to think that everybody's going to be saved. But I think anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. Would you pray with me? I know it's late. But I want you to be serious for just a couple minutes. Understanding that we are a privileged generation. There's been more songs of the gospel, more testimonies of the gospel, and preaching of the gospel in this hour and a half service than some places on this planet will ever hear in a lifetime. And it's, we're not the only, we're the best church, but we're not the only church in town preaching the gospel. There are churches everywhere preaching the gospel. There are pastors everywhere preaching the gospel. But there are people sitting in a pew playing childish games with God, not responding. And you're not responsible for the next church, no, no more than I'm responsible for the next pastor, but we are responsible individually. And you're, responsibly, you're responsible individually with what you do with the gospel. Many of us from a child have heard the gospel from Bible schools that we were made to go to that we didn't want to go to. Memorizing verses we didn't want to memorize for a piece of paper saying, good job. We look back now and we say, what, what a privilege it was to have access to the gospel. But just because you've been in church 20, 30, 50 years doesn't mean that you've ever repented of your sins and accepted Christ as your Savior. And I know this sounds like a broken record. This is not some evangelistic tent meeting. But what a tragedy it would be to be lost in a Baptist church with the gospel being preached when you have the opportunity. And if that's here, just you today, I believe it's as simple as calling on him honestly, sincerely from your heart to God acknowledging you're a sinner, not because some preacher said it, but because the word of God says it. Believing by faith that Jesus paid the price for your sin. Confessing him as Lord of your life. If you do that, I believe the Bible says you will be a new creation. No things will be passed away. There's no magic prayer. It's just a prayer from your heart to God's heart. Calling on him. And he'll save you if you do that. If you do make that decision today, I certainly would want to know. One of our pastors want to know. Talk to us. Tell somebody after. Come to an altar and pray. If you want to do that, one of us will pray with you now. 
The second principle and application of this is for us as Great Commission Christians, when we go out into the world, if they rejected John the Baptist and they rejected Jesus, there's a good chance we'll get a rejection or two. But we're not called to save people. We're called to tell them, to plant the seed, to water the seed, and God will give the increase. Don't let people and their attitudes and their responses keep us from sharing the good news. Would you stand as we sing? The altars are open. If you want to come pray, you want to be prayed with, you have somebody you want to call out by name, pray for them now while we sing. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.